The language of 2023, threat to democracy, Antifa, Oath Keepers, Stop the Steal, Fascism, Brexit, Weaponizing the Government, The Proud Boys, Artificial Intelligence, Bleach Bit. Who understands all this? Where does the language come from? We asked British author Dorian Linsky to help us. His latest book is titled The Ministry of Truth, the biography of George Orwell's 1984. In his introduction, Linsky writes, the phrases and concepts that Orwell minted in 1948 have become essential fixtures of political language, still potent after decades of use and misuse. Newspeak, Big Brother, the Thought Police, Room 101, Doublethink, Memory Hole, and much more. Dorian Linsky, in your book and the acknowledgments, you write this. Writing a book is a horrible, exhausting struggle, like a long bout of some painful illness. George Orwell chimed in, why I write a book that he wrote earlier, and then you say, at the risk of disappointing him, I have to say that writing this book was, for me, was the most rewarding and enjoyable experience in my life that was largely due to the feeling that I was not alone. Tell us more about why you you had a different experience than he did when he wrote 1984. Well, Orwell always uh, seemed to have a hard time writing books. I think Animal Farm was the exception. That was the only one that came quickly. Um, and this was one of the things that's so fascinating about it is it took him so long from first sketching out the idea in 1943 to finishing it in 1948. All kinds of um, all kinds of events intervened. He lost his wife shortly after they'd adopted a child, so he became a, a single parent. Uh, he had an extraordinary amount of freelance journalism to do just to sort of uh, to stay afloat financially before the success of Animal Farm. And he suffered from tuberculosis. And so he ended up uh, finishing the book, really writing um, the, the bulk of it on the island of Jura, uh, which is a very, um, a fairly inhospitable and remote place, while going in and out of quite serious bouts of tuberculosis um, and was hospitalised for a period during the writing of the book and finished it really uh, at the end of his tether health-wise. He, he, didn't, he didn't believe he was dying, um, but he was very sick. And he just found the whole thing rather miserable. And perhaps part of it was the headspace, you know, of this world. He, he was living in, in Airstrip One, uh, this very bleak dystopia. Um, and, and even though he could kind of take time off to sort of play with his son and, and do some gardening and, and, and feel the sunshine, it was, it obviously took a huge toll on him. Before we get to George Orwell, let me ask you about you. First of all, where are you today? I'm in London, at home. Where were you born? Uh, born in Norwich, uh, which I believe is it maybe, sorry, no, it doesn't, it's not Norwich, it's Colchester. Sorry, I'll do that again. I was born <laughs> in Norwich, I was born in Norwich uh, and grew up in southeast London, and I now live in North London. How did you get interested in writing? In writing generally? Um, 
it was just it was something I certainly did as a, as a, as a you know as a kid where you just rip off uh, stories that you like. <laughs> adventure stories that you like um and then as a teenager i became interested in in journalism and then went on to study uh english literature at university uh and then came out of university and became a journalist but always still retained that interest in in literature and trying to combine that with journalism as i went on do you have a a full-time job or is this a freelance experience for you writing books and articles it's it's always been a freelance experience, which has enabled me to uh, to write articles, but also move into books and podcasting. What was your first book? Uh, that was Thirty Three Revolutions Per Minute: A History of Protest Songs. Uh, so I was very interested in the intersection of music and politics because most of the journalism I did in my twenties and thirties was music journalism, um, and this was a way of writing about the the wider world. When did you first say to yourself, I'm going to write a book about George Orwell? I became really interested in dystopian fiction because it's so commonplace now and uh, and rather cliched. Like we all know the we all know the tropes of the police state and surveillance um, and torture and these sort of hideous future societies. And I, and I wondered where all that came from. And it, it didn't start with Orwell, but so much of what we read now flows from Orwell. And so through an interest in the genre, I became fascinated by how how Orwell created this, what is still, I think, the quintessential dystopia. What was he reading? What were the political points he was trying to make? What were his personal experiences? You know, everything that fed into the book and then all of the things that flowed from that book in the decades afterwards. Is his adopted son, Richard, still alive? And were you able to talk to him before you finished your book? Uh, he is still alive. Um, but because he was so young at the time, you know, he, he doesn't have a lot of insight into into 1984 per se. Um, I did, in fact, meet him after after the book. And he said nice. I'm not sure if he'd actually read it, but he certainly said nice things about it. Um, but because it was not a full bi- a biography of Orwell himself, it's a biography of the book. Um, largely what I was using was um, archival research, Orwell's writing, contemporary sources, things like that. We are going to talk to you about George Orwell and, his, and who he is, but your book is not, as you say, not a biography per se. What's the difference? Well, it's not the first time that somebody's called something a biography of a, of a novel, um, and I think that once you decide that you're going to write the life story of a of a work of art, um, it, it sort of both narrows what you need to do and broadens it out. So, for example, there were there were some very good biographies of George Orwell. I realised that I did not have to write about so much about his childhood or his love life and and all the things that a kind of a biographer of Orwell would do. But the life story of the novel takes you into uh, Adaptations, it takes you into David Bowie and um, movies like Brazil and Viva Vendetta, you know, and aspects of the Cold War and all of these other things that were happening around Orwell and then happened around the novel after his death. So it, it enabled me to go to all these places that a biographer of Orwell would, would, not, would not go because obviously they're going to stop uh, when he died in, in um, 1950. And I could go on because the book goes on. You wrote about the famous Apple ad. Tell us that story. 
Oh, so that's a fascinating ad because it's called 1984. Where, but actually, if you look at the um, the tropes in it, they they really sort of go back more to to H.G. Wells. It's not really a representation of what happens in the in the novel. But there was this tremendous hysteria running up to the year 1984 about the novel and about predictions of the future. It's like anybody who wanted to say something about the future in, you know, 82, 83, 84 would peg it to this book. And Steve Jobs and the ad agency Chiat Day that he worked with sort of had this very clever idea that they were going to present the the Apple as this sort of um, this agile countercultural alternative to like the behemoth of IBM. And this was going to be this empowering uh, personal computer. And IBM was going to be presented. I mean, they didn't say that in the ad, but that was the implication that 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 was Big Brother. There was this terrible kind of uh, um, sort of bureaucratic, dystopian version of computers. There was a great deal of fear about computers at the time. And the Apple Mac was going to be presented as this... uh, device for liberation and so they got Ridley Scott to direct it and it's this um it is it's an astonishing artifact it was actually only ever shown once but became one of the most famous uh, and effective tv ads of all time who is eric blair well eric blair is uh the birth name of george orwell how long did he have that and name? Well, he he actually kept it until he died. That is the name on his both his birth certificate and his gravestone. Um, but in the 1930s, he felt that he needed a pseudonym for, for various reasons, partly because he feared that if he failed as a writer, it would be a terrible embarrassment to his family. Um, so he chose the name George Orwell, um, the Orwell being a river in, in Suffolk uh, near where he lived, uh, where, where he lived for a while. What does it mean to be Orwellian? Uh, now, this, of course, is a word that did not exist in, in Orwell's lifetime. And I don't know whether he would have been happy with it, because, of course, what it means is, is negative. There is a uh, there's another use of Orwellian, which means to write, to think like George Orwell. But that's been totally eclipsed by um, the meaning, which is so basically means things that feel like 1984, which is an extraordinary number of things. So his name is associated with basically everything he hated. Where did he grow up and what experiences he have in his early life, both Animal Farm and 1984 were at the end of his life? Um, Tell us more about his youth. So he was born in India, um, where um, where his father worked then moved back to England. Uh, very typical kind of writing, writer's parents. This crops up in a lot of different writers' biographies. Um, a very sort of charismatic and loving and supporting mother and a, a rather sort of cold and distant father. Um, he decided not to go to... He went to Eton, um, which he sort of hated and later presented as a, as a kind of mini police state uh, in, in a writing. In Let writing. me ask you, though, for Americans that don't know what Eton is, explain, please. Oh, OK, so it's Britain's top, it's Britain's top public school, um, produced numerous prime ministers, including um, David Cameron and Boris Johnson. From what years to what years are you taught at that school? In other words, does, so, it, go to the, does it go to the end of your uh, high school years? 
It does, yeah. He went to um, this sort of rather rather sort of shabby private preparatory school, which he he hated um, hated far more than Eton. Eton, he didn't he didn't hate so much as just feel not quite at home there. What, um, what, at, what does it mean looking back that Aldous Huxley taught him at Eton? It's it's a, more of a strange coincidence. Certainly he was, that brought him into contact with somebody, of course, who went on to write uh, the other most famous dystopian novel of that period, Brave New World. But it was a very, it was a very brief acquaintance. Huxley wasn't there for very long. He wasn't very well at the time. Um, and it certainly didn't seem to um, stop Orwell and Huxley from criticising each other's novels and sort of rival versions of the future later on. In fact, this was a feature of Orwell's life that his personal relationship with a writer did not prevent him from being very harsh about them in print. If you put students in one room and said, you read Brave New World and students in another room and you read 1984 and you brought them together, what would they more than likely say about the books that they read? And what's the difference between the two of them? If you wanted to sort of really, really sum it up, I suppose that Orwell's uh, vision of a, tota- of a totalitarian future based on his, his knowledge of totalitarian regimes in Russia and Germany uh, was that pain and fear would be what kept people in line. Now, Huxley, who was really basing um, his totalitarian world on um, America, thought that it would be more cunning than that. It would be more subtle. It would use pleasure. It would sedate people with entertainment and sex and drugs so that they would not rebel. And they continued to to disagree about this strongly. Orwell criticised Huxley and said, no, you know, there has to be that, there has to be violence, there has to be real oppression for, you know, for, for power to sustain itself. Uh, and Huxley thought that Orwell had just gone too, you know, just gone too far and said, well, OK, this might have been what happened in under Stalin and Hitler. But in the future, as technology develops, um, we will see that, you know, that you can oppress people in a far more cunning way. Now, what happened, what was evident by the, the 1980s when people were still arguing about this, there's a famous book, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which came out of a conference on Orwell in 1984, with, and, and his argument is that, no, 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 modern society is much more like Huxley. And it's true that, of course, modern democracies are much more like, like Huxley describes. But what was becoming apparent, actually, was that the, the tyranny of the future, and I think that you can actually see this in, in Putin's Russia, would be a hybrid. It would not be as bleak and joyless as the world that Orwell described, but there would still be there would still be violent oppression. There would still be political prisoners and and so on. So it's this sort of merger where you get the brutality, but then you also get the entertainment and the distraction. So the, the answer that I, I give to this is that, well, they were, they were both right. (laughs) Actually what the, 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 the modern, the modern tyranny is a hybrid of those two um, techniques. Which of those two novels would the students you think prefer? Just based on oh, what you know about young people. I mean, 1984, like undoubtedly, 
um, it's a better story. It's a better book. That, that Huxley was still, he was writing Brave New World in the 1930s. And up until that point, most utopian and anti-utopian or dystopian novels were really uh, thought experiments. They were kind of essays disguised as novels. So the action of Brave New World is much less convincing than the ideas. Whereas Orwell actually read quite a lot of thrillers and adventure novels and had an appreciation for, um, for plot and emotion as well as ideas. So there, it's just a much more exciting reading. You know, it has twists. It has this, this, this air of paranoia. It has shocking developments and it has characters that feel real in a setting that feels real. You know, one of his, one of Orwell's great kind of, sorry, what I said. One of Orwell's real strokes of inspiration was to set it in the not so distant future. You know, it comes out in 1949, it's set in 1984. Brave New World is set in the distant future as most of those novels were. So it's a very kind of, it's, you don't, it's always like, you don't have to worry about this. This is something that's going to happen a few centuries from now. Uh, and all I was going, no, you, you really do have to worry about this because this could, this could happen in your lifetime. And he based the texture of the life of Estrip one on things that he had experienced. You know, he, it, it very much feels like post-war London this kind of exhausted, bombed out place. All of the buildings that, that he describes as part of the regime were based on buildings uh, that existed in London at the time. So it just feels vivid and real, in a, whereas Brave New World feels more abstract. You, uh, I mean, you look at Orwell's life, spent four years, I believe, in Burma as a policeman, spent some time in northern England in the poverty lived in the poverty areas what what in his life had the biggest impression on him among the things we just I just mentioned <clears throat> yeah I mean the biggest impression I think on him it, in regard to 1984 was when he spent a few months in Spain fighting in the Spanish Civil War on the part of the Republic against um, Franco's quasi-fascist uh, forces and Orwell had this sort of principle that he had to, to write about something convincingly, he had to experience it. So his first novel, Burmese Days, is about his sense of guilt and complicity in imperialism in Burma. Uh, he was, made himself um, homeless for a while and wrote down and out in Paris and London. He spent time in the north of England, like you said, in order to write The Road to Wigan Pier. And then his other early novels were, were very much based on his own life. And so his only experience really of political oppression and political violence was that time that he spent in Spain. And it was a real turning point for him politically because he was a socialist. He was never a, a communist, uh, never a supporter of the Soviet regime. But he was a, a passionate socialist and anti-fascist. And he went to Spain in the understandable belief that he was going to be fighting uh, on the right side. What shocked him was that the Soviets were supporting the, um, the communists, the international brigades, 
uh, there and basically exported the paranoia and the persecutions that were taking place in Russia to Spain. So that if you were a Trotskyist and anarchist and independent socialist, i.e. all the people that Orwell was fighting alongside, then you needed to be defamed as fascist collaborators and arrested and tortured and sometimes killed. And so there was a civil war going on within the civil war. And this horrified Orwell, as did the fact that he realised that the left back in Britain, for the most part, didn't want to hear about it, did not want to print his journalism about it, did not want to print the book that he was writing about it, uh, Homage to Catalonia, because it didn't fit. It was very inconvenient, you know, that, that largely if you were a socialist or communist in Britain at the time, you needed to feel that that Russia, for all its, you know, flaws, was was broadly on the right side, you know, because particularly if you were if you were anti-fascist and you saw that, you know, Hitler was the, the real enemy. And Orwell realised that, of course, Hitler was the enemy. But so was so was Stalin, that they were almost two sides of the same coin, that this was these they were two versions of what was at the time being uh, described as totalitarianism. And he later wrote that both Animal Farm, very obviously, because it's a it's a sort of an allegory about Soviet Russia and 1984 really flowed from that revelation in Spain, not just the political epiphany that he had, but also his experience of Barcelona when the sort of Russian secret police were in charge. That was his experience of a police state. And it really was only a few days. But so much of that, that that genuine fear comes out in 1984. When was he shot and where did the bullet land and what impact did that have on him? So he he didn't really see much military action because basically it was the Soviet-backed forces had all the um, had the weaponry and equipment and the people that he was fighting with the, the Poom uh, were very very poorly equipped. So he didn't see much military action and when he did because he was rather reckless and gung ho, um, he stood up in a trench when he should not have stood up and was shot in the throat. Very nearly killed him. And instead, what it did was it permanently damaged his voice. So it gave him this rather sort of whiny, croaky voice, which is unfortunate uh, when he became during World War Two, because he was too sick to sign up for the army. Um, He decided he was going to help the war effort by working for the BBC. But his voice was so um, apparently so unpleasant to listen to that people at the BBC worried that if he was allowed to keep broadcasting, uh, people would think that the BBC didn't know what they were doing. (laughs) And so he he had to move behind the scenes and became a a really uh, ingenious um, scriptwriter and producer, but was not allowed back on air. And in fact, there are no uh, extant recordings of his voice. So... We only know what he sounded like from from written descriptions and the memories of people he knew him. So nobody today can hear his voice. 
No. Now, maybe at some point somebody will find some some lost recording. But of course, the BBC didn't keep a lot of those recordings. They didn't think they would. They didn't think they would need to. They didn't think they were significant. And, and much of what he wrote was was actually delivered by other people. Am I correct? And I read that he didn't like his time at the BBC and left him. Well, he stayed there for two years and actually produced a lot of good work. Um, he complained about it all the time. Um, complained about the the management. Complained about the the atmosphere there. Complained they didn't have enough, you know, the, the right equipment. That he was broadcasting to people in India, and there weren't that many people in India at the time with radios. So he actually felt that that what he was doing was largely useless. And yet, if anybody else criticised the BBC or criticised him for working for them as part of the war effort, called him a propagandist, he would get incredibly defensive. So there was a there was a pride there. I think the, the thing that I noticed about reading through Orwell's work and his diaries and letters and so on is that he, he did love to complain. And yet, often when somebody else did the criticising, that was when his sort of this defensive pride would kick in. Why did the BBC think they needed to put a statue of him outside their building? Which you have a picture of in your book. Yeah. Well, he became, I mean, he's obviously become this sort of iconic figure in Britain and indeed around the world. As somebody that says, um, that said and wrote about inconvenient facts, and so the the line, I'm I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but the line on the statue is: if freedom of speech means anything, it means the freedom to tell people what they do not want to hear. Uh, now, ironically, when he was at the BBC, um, all his work had to go through official censors. It was part of the war effort. It was designed to. It was soft propaganda. So it wasn't like he was kind of. Um, it wasn't like hard military propaganda. But it was sort of, I suppose, what we call soft power, presenting Britain to people in India, reminding people, oh, well, you know, how wonderful British culture is and how it is a beacon of freedom and and so on. Um, so, of course, he was not allowed to tell people what they did not want to hear. And that's what that's one of the sort of that's one of the paradoxes. I'm glad that there's a statue there, but I do find that quote rather funny. What would um... George Orwell think of the United States today, right now, if he saw what had been going on here in the last four or five years. And what do you think of it? What's it look like to you, knowing all you know about <clears throat> 1984, Brave New World, Animal Farm, going, I can keep going, you, you know this area so well. Yeah. Well, I mean, first thing to say is that Orwell was rather anti-American, did have a rather condescending view of America, never went there. Um, he had plans to go there in the late 1940s, but um, he was too ill and then he died. So he never really experienced it. And he just had an awfully low opinion generally of, uh, of American culture. He liked Mark Twain, didn't like Hollywood, didn't like comic books, didn't like American popular music. So he was kind of a snob about it, to be honest. Um, but if we're talking specifically about the, the, the period of the last few years, you know, I'm very, I was very loath to sort of say what Orwell would have thought, because there's a long history of people saying, you know, oh, he would have supported the war in Vietnam. He would have opposed the war in Vietnam. He would have liked Kennedy. He would have disliked Kennedy. And, it, and that whole 
thing became rather fraudulent. But I did notice in his writing how often the type of person that he disliked and the type of politics that he disliked came out through Trump and and indeed the Republican Party uh, as a whole. You know, the, the uh, bullying. He, he said that sort of, you know, fascism was very hard to define even back then. But he said, you know, most people would see it as a sort of fascist, as a synonym for a bully. And there was a kind of an ugly nationalism that he he absolutely despised, even though he, he was quite patriotic. He opposed that. He said, OK, patriotism, which is a love of your own country, is very different to nationalism, which is about the superiority of your country and therefore an aggression towards other people. Um, he disliked, I mean, for a man of his time, obviously, so there were some, some prejudices that he'd grown up with. But when he wrote about race... Um, you know, he he attacked racism, he attacked anti-Semitism. It, it seems to me that what has happened on the, the right of American politics is the kind of thing that he was trying to address in 1984. There's an explanation that he wrote in a press statement because a lot of American reviewers assumed that... Um, what he was criticizing was uh, socialism as a whole, including the Labour government of Clement Attlee. And Orwell was horrified by this because he considered himself a democratic socialist. And he, uh, he put out this statement going, no, 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 no. Like, for one thing, I'm not just attacking, I'm attacking sort of Stalinism, but I'm not just attacking the left, I'm not attacking socialism as a whole. For another, totalitarianism can come in different forms. And he said there could be an American version under the banner of 100% Americanism, um, which was actually a, a phrase around um, during the 30s and 40s associated with America first. So, I mean, it seems to me pretty clear that he would have disliked those features of, I suppose, what you could call Trumpism and also the blatant bending of reality. The, the phrase that Kellyanne Conway came up with, just in passing, but became totemic, I think, alternative facts. You know, the idea that you can just rewrite not just the past, but the present to suit your political agenda, and then your supporters will go along with it. That is something that he, that he noticed and attacked frequently. And maybe what would have shocked him is the fact that so many people would go along with this without, uh, you know, the secret police at their door, that they would choose to believe in things that were blatantly untrue. They would not have to be forced into it, you know, at the, at the tip of a nightstick. In any poll today of the American people, <clears throat> uh, politicians are on the right down at the bottom. Mm. They also, the public does not, they believe they're not telling the truth. Mm. A substantial number of people in this country do not believe politicians are telling the truth. Or better put, they lie. Mm. And, and the reason I bring this up, because in the introduction that you didn't hear, I brought up a lot of the language that's in 1984. Mm. And Newspeak, what's Newspeak? 
Oh, Newspeak is the uh, the kind of the new vocabulary that the regime is trying to introduce, which by narrowing the range of voices, so by narrowing the range of language, it narrows the range of thought. And so it seeks to abolish words like, um, you know, freedom, democracy, like with, without the, so it, there are no words even to express those concepts. So the concepts fade away. And it's this very crude, condensed language. Where which is, includes what, <clears throat> Word in from his perspective, in, in this country, for instance, depending on what side you're on, when you ask about our border between the United States and Mexico, one side will say that the border is wide open and we've had and it's true, we've had millions come across that border. The other side, in the name of our current president, the border is secure. Right. What would Orwell think of that kind of language? And does that fit into Newspeak? Not Newspeak so much, but, but what he described in his essay, Politics in the English Language. And I think there's a distinction to be made between the, and he made this himself, between the normal lying and euphemisms of political language. That he pointed out that, that people on all sides use, use euphemisms, bend language, reframe facts, leave out the inconvenient ones. He's like, well, this is this is what politics does. But what he's describing in 1984 is based on what was happening in totalitarian regimes, where you are literally saying, you know, that that black is white, that you are forcing people to confess to crimes that they, you know, didn't commit, that you are making up statistics yeah, pence two plus two equals five you know that you you're essentially saying reality doesn't matter the truth is whatever i say it is and i think that is the qualitative difference that you can and and, the, and fact checkers have shown this that that joe biden barack obama other democratic polit other democrat politicians will you know, so I say things that are, are not true or half true. And, and this is a kind of, you know, a malaise of politics. But that what someone like Trump was doing was literally acting as if reality was this kind of Play-Doh that he could mold however he, he liked. And I think that's the distinction. I mean, oh, I was very, was very exacting, was very, very critical. So... I think on that issue of the border, yeah, he would have he would have been critical of of, of both those camps. But I always I think it's it's so important to say that what he was describing in 1984 was something much more pernicious than the normal business of of sort of political dishonesty. Who who was in 1984 Big Brother? Oh, do you mean who did he represent? Yeah, right. Because the Big Brother never actually appears in 1984. He only appears as a poster. He is referred to. He doesn't speak, like, like on the Apple ad where his face appears on the screen. Well, that's not the case in the book. In fact, it's debatable. There are so many things that are debatable in the book. Whether he is still alive, whether he ever existed, whether he's just a symbol. 
he was based partly on Stalin. I mean, more Stalin than, than, than most, just this kind of very dominating, mustachioed figure whose you know, faces on every poster. Of course, there are elements of Hitler in there as well. But he was meant to be the kind of, the archetypal dictator of, the, but, it, but, but somebody who was actually quite hard to, to reach. He was more of a, a symbol than a human being that people were not knowing anything about his everyday life. He was just the face of power. If uh, you were in the same room with George Orwell and could see him physically, what did he look like? I know the picture we always see of him, but how tall was he? How was he? How big was he? Gosh, do you need me to look up the height? I can't remember exactly how tall he was. I think I remember reading, maybe in your book, he was 6'3", which you never... Yeah. And there's a picture in your book that suggests that when you see him standing next to other people. He was. He was a, he was a tall, sort of gangly, thin man. I mean, this is one of the reasons he, um, he made a, a, a great target for a Spanish sniper, unfortunately. He kind of had this sickly sort of rattled air he always seemed rather unwell he dressed rather shabbily did he, he was compared did he, did he smoke he smoked all the time i mean just uh, he smoked so much of a screw, which of course did not help uh with the tuberculosis and his general um his general health when did they find the tuberculosis Realizing that he lived 1903 to 1950, where did they find yeah. him? Well, it was he was diagnosed. I mean, he'd obviously had it for a long time. He was diagnosed. Um, hang on, let me see. When was he diagnosed? Yeah. Right. So, so he was diagnosed in 1938 because he had been coughing up blood, was actually sent to a sanatorium and, and, and went to um, Morocco to recuperate because there was a, a sense that the kind of warmer, drier air would be, would be better for him. So, I mean, he really kind of struggled with it for most of his writing career. Most of what he achieved was, was under the shadow of tuberculosis and, and between hospital stays. But it didn't get really bad. It didn't come back in a big way until the late 40s while he was writing uh, 1984. What year did Animal Farm come out? That was 45. He'd written it before, um, but nobody wanted to publish it because it was obviously an attack on Stalin. And at that time, of course, uh, Stalin was, was an ally of Britain and America. So he had great difficulties finding a publisher. Why would a publisher, I mean, it gets back to the whole, in our country, First Amendment. Uh, why would a publisher be afraid of that? Afraid Stalin come after him? Or, you know, what's the... Or them? <clears throat> why would they not publish a book like that in a free society? Well, there were various reasons. Some people thought that it was just politically unwise. I think one of the, one of the potential publishers was warned off by the, uh, by the British government. And said, like, this is, we don't want this to, um, we don't want to alienate a, a military ally. There were some people in publishing in Britain and America who were, who liked Stalin. You know, the, the, their own personal politics meant that, that, that this book sort of disgusted them. And they thought that this was an attack on a, on a socialist hero. 
and um, he found it he found it ridiculous. There's this great line where he says, imagine old Joe sitting in the Kremlin reading Animal Farm and saying, I don't like this. <laughs> you, you know, he just thought that it, he thought it was ridiculous. And of course, this 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 experience of his struggle to get it published informed a lot of his writing on the freedom of the press and freedom of speech, because he was yeah, he was literally he was a victim of, of censorship. He had every right to complain about that. Then, of course, it comes out, and then sort of the world changes very, very quickly after the end of the Second World War. So Stalin goes from being this heroic ally to being, you know, the Cold War villain. And then at that point, the CIA and other American uh, government bodies love this book and want to have it translated into various languages and distributed in Eastern Europe. So it goes from being unpublishable to becoming one of the first cultural weapons in the Cold War. What do you make of the quote out of Animal Farm, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others? I mean, a, a, a classic line and one that sort of prefigures the paradoxes in 1984. You know, the idea that Animal Farm, I see almost as this kind of thematic prequel to 1984. It shows how the revolution was betrayed. It shows the faith that people had in revolution, why people would have wanted a revolution. You know, it's not a defense of, it's a critique of communism. It's not a defense of capitalism. You can totally understand why the animals wanted to overthrow uh, this abusive farmer. But what he does with the language in Animal Farm is, is really shows how inch by inch the, the, the sort of Stalinesque figure and pig, Napoleon, makes people doubt their own memories, rewrite, rewrites the um, principles of the revolution. And so the, the animals don't realise the freedoms that are being taken away from them. They don't realise the lies that they're being told. So in Animal Farm, you get how the revolution was betrayed. And then 1984, you get the consequences of that. And I think in some editions of these books, there's a real sort of visual blurring between Napoleon and Big Brother. Big Brother is almost what Napoleon becomes, but obviously in, in, in human form. The word, the two words, memory hole from 1984 means what? Oh, so the memory hole is a literal thing in the Ministry of Truth where uh, Winston Smith, the protagonist, works when his job in the pre-digital era is constantly rewriting back copies of the newspapers. And so if a hero, a former hero of the regime, it suddenly becomes inconvenient to Big Brother um, and is not just purged and murdered, but has to be defamed. All the uh, old articles about, you know, how wonderful they were during the during the war, have to be expunged and rewritten, and therefore the original version gets put down the memory hole. And memory hole is an example of, I think, what makes 1984 such a famous book, more than the plot, more than the characters, more than even the, the, the central themes, was how many words he invented. You know, he comes up with uh, he comes up with memory hole and newspeak and Big Brother, the thought police, thought crime, 
these are were these are words and phrases that people use even if they've never read the book and even his way of coining words inspired the word groupthink the psychologists that came up with the word groupthink that was modeled on wrongthink in 1984 so he sort of created not just these words but a way of writing new words and that's what gives the novel this incredible reach beyond the reach of a normal work of literature that people use words. I see them literally every day, for example, on, on Twitter. And they might, might not even know what the memory hole originally was. You know, to memory hole something now, you don't literally have a tube that you put a piece of paper down that, so it's never seen again. Um, so I don't even know whether a lot of the people using using these words know exactly where they came from and what their original meanings were and how much they owe to to Orwell's imagination. In the introduction, I said you were going to help us understand some of the language that we have been living through here, uh, the January 6th, and it's all reduced to a couple words, Antifa, Oath Keepers, Stop the Steal, of course, Brexit in your country, Weaponizing government is another phrase that's been used in the last year or so. Mm. And then just a short distance where I'm sitting is a trial that's being held uh, in the U.S. District Court for people like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. And the Proud Boys are a group of men, mostly white men. Actually, the leader is an Afro-Cuban by the name of uh, Enrique um, Tario. But they're they're being accused of seditious conspiracy. Mm. And when you hear all this language from this country, what's your reaction? What does it, how does it fit in with what Orwell might've started in 1949? Oh gosh. Well, some of it is very, is Orwellian, stop the steal. It's a phrase that out of context, you would think, well, of course, we should stop the steal. You know, we should have, uh, you know, free and fair elections. But then you realize the concept that, that there was no steal. And so a lot of the time it's the, the language that is being used by or what I see as sort of anti-democratic forces is, of course, the language of democracy and freedom. And that has always been that has always been the way nobody wants to, nobody thinks that they're the you know, that they're the bad guys. So what. What I take from, from Orwell's writing, the journalism, the nonfiction, as well as 1984, is this much closer attention to language and, and how, it's, how it's used, what the political purpose is. You know, sort of out of this book, I ended up co-hosting co and writing um, a podcast called Origin Story, where me and my co-host, Ian Dunn, look at the the origin of phrases that get used a lot McCarthyism, fascism, um, woke, and so on. You know where they came from, how they're used, how they're misused, how the the original meanings are are often obscured, sometimes inadvertently, sometimes deliberately. And so you take a word like um, like woke, which used to be a word of pride, and now is almost entirely an insult. And so when I watch the news now, not just the things you're describing, but, you know, my own country and, and, and anywhere in the world, you know, you look at the way that Putin called the invasion of Ukraine a police action. 
the way that he presents it as an anti-fascist war and, 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 and pretends that, that the Ukraine is riddled with fascists, which it simply isn't. There are, you know, there's smaller, smaller numbers of fascists in Ukraine than there are in most European countries. So I see it as a way of, um, when you really engage with how he thought and what he was worried about, it is a useful way of reading the world, a sort of prophylactic way of re reading the world, that it gives you this scepticism, this all well-like scepticism about the way that people use and abuse language and to be suspicious, not to be paranoid, because then that can lead you, you know, down the path of conspiracy theorists. And although I think that Orwell did have a, a bit of a paranoid streak, you know, his scepticism, he, he had a sort of healthy scepticism and, and, and a respect for facts, which prevented him from kind of going too far down that path. But I think it's so important to think about what, what people mean when they say certain things and how language can be used to mean the opposite of, of what you think it means. There's a picture in your book of the Jura house that uh, he wrote the, the uh, 1984 in. Um, and you point out that the Jura house is on, Jura is a island off Scotland, mm. and that it takes a couple of days in his days to get there from London. Mm. Uh, paint, did you go there, by the way, to look at it, the house? <coughs> no, unfortunately, the house is not open to the public. So I was told that I could make this very long journey <laughs> and then stand on the road and look at the house. And I just pictured myself spending all this time getting up there, taking a photo that I could find online and then coming back, um, which, is a, which is a great shame. It's, it's, it's used for like holiday rentals and, and, and stuff. And it would be nice if it were a kind of like a, you know, an open, like a, a museum to Orwell. But, but I, I did a lot. But I did just explain what it was like at the time. How long did he stay there? And it was so far away from civilization. Who was with him? And what was the atmosphere in which he finished this book? How long, how long did it take him to finish it? The main misconception, I think, about Jura is that it was just this awful, um, inhospitable hellhole. And actually, he went there uh, in May 1946. This is after his wife's um, unexpected death during an operation. So he was a widower with a young son. And he went there with his sister, basically to get away from London. And getting away from London meant getting away from journalism. He just wanted to write the book. And he felt that he needed peace and quiet. And a no, friend of no his... No phone, no, no hot water. I believe so. I'm not sure. Yeah, it was pretty, it, the, the, it was pretty primitive, but it was also very nice. <laughs> the thing, the weather was quite temperate. He loved gardening. He loved the outdoors. He loved going out on the water in his boat. He invited, he was always inviting friends up, some of whom came, some of whom just thought they couldn't be bothered with the journey. But this image of him as this sort of lonely dying man on a kind of freezing cold Scottish island is not true. It was actually quite, the weather was actually very nice a lot of the time. He, he you know, he hosted friends and family members as often as he could. He had a nice time there, despite 
yeah, despite the illness and despite the bleak subject matter. So I think Jira gets a bit of a bad rap because actually what he hated more was when he had to come down to London because he wasn't he didn't spend all his time in Jira the whole sort of next three and a half years. He came back to London for a period and London was what he really hated at that point. He, it was, yeah, it was a pretty, um, pretty bleak, impoverished place after the Second World War. He came back during the winter. You know, to him, Jura seemed like paradise by comparison to, to, to post-war London. Do you have any idea? <clears throat> he died, he was 46 years old in uh, 1950. Do you have any idea how many copies of 1984 have been sold and what's the current copyright situation in case you happen to know that well it's just come out of copyrights in um britain and i believe america so you can do all kinds of things with 1984 now um some of these things will probably be quite um bad <laughs> but for a very long time his his widow uh, sonia who he married very shortly before he died. She was extremely protective. She stopped all kinds of things, like David Bowie wanted to make a musical version of 1984, which I suspect would not have been good. And it is good that that, that Sonia stopped him from doing it. But for a very long time, um, there were things you couldn't do in 1984. The, the situation with the film rights became very, very complicated. Um, it sold tens of millions of copies. I mean, just... And it, and it was a bestseller right from the start, and it has never stopped selling. It clear, of course, never been out of print, but it's always sold. And whenever there is a um, political um, crisis or something that draws attention to to the themes of the book, the sales spike again. It spiked in the week of Trump's inauguration, for example. But yeah, now it's out of copyright. There are all kinds of editions. I've written the foreword to 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 one edition. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see um, another film version. I think there's scope for another film version, even though the one that came out in 1984 is, is excellent. And there will probably be, you know, possibly stage musicals and concept albums and, and God knows what else. Your book is called The Ministry of Truth. Uh, we talked a tiny bit about it in the beginning, but what can people get from your book that they can't get from a normal book about Orwell? Well, what I hope is is a really deep understanding of where this book came from. You know, that in a regular biography, 1984 is just part of the story. Here, it is the lens through which I see his entire life. So I'm interested in, okay, what did his experiences in Burma bring to this book? What did his experiences in Spain bring to the book? What was he reading? You know, I read, I tried to read everything that he had read pretty much that was relevant I read every single word that he wrote. And so I was picking out things in his journalism that would just not be relevant to most uh, biographers, but they gave me a little clear. I was like, oh, okay, I think this is an influence on idea. If I think for where this phrase, where this idea comes from, who was he re reading? Who was he talking to? Basically tracking his thought processes and trying to, um, you know, quash some misconceptions like the misconception that, you know, that he was terribly miserable in Jura, like the misconception that he thought he was dying. In fact, he was quite optimistic and, and didn't think that he was. Like the misconception that 1984 is the digits of 1948 reversed and that it was basically a sort of, you know, just a satire on, on Britain at the time. 
which it wasn't. That's not why. That's not why he called it that. So, I just wanted to go so deep into the the ideas, the origins of the book, and also the afterlife of the book, and how much it has been, how influential it has been, how many arguments has it inspired. There are people on the left who love it. There are people on the far right who think that it is a book for them. Uh, they cannot, they cannot both be right. There are people that don't realize that he was a socialist. There's sort of no end to, um, there's no end to the misunderstandings about a piece of work this famous. And what I wanted to do was show people not necessarily my opinions about it, but all that I'd learned about it and to, to really put it in its context and to inspire people to go back and read it with fresh eyes because people read it when they're young a lot of the time and they never go back to it because they think, I know what it's about. And actually it's a much stranger and more provocative book than I think most people remember. How about the title? Why did you choose The Ministry of Truth? That came quite late in the day. That came pretty much when I'd finished the book. And I suppose what I'd realized while writing the book is that the it means different things at different times. That when it came out, people saw it as very clearly a book about totalitarianism and a book about Russia in many ways. And then later on, people thought that it was a book about, you know, computers. <laughs> people thought it was a book about surveillance. And it's a, it's a book about all of these things. And what I thought, I thought, what is it about now? And why it's important in this era of populism and online disinformation is it's about the fragility of truth. And how important it is to sort of respect objective reality and how easily that can be manipulated by bad actors in in politics and on social media and in so many other places and i thought yeah that's it that's winston's workplace in the book is i think what the book what makes the book so important at this time in history and maybe in 10 20 years Something else about the book will be what makes it important. We're a little almost over time, and I've kept you a long time, but i got to ask you one last couple of questions. Charles Dickens, how much of this is Dickensian based on the time that he spent with people in poverty? Oh, that's interesting, because he was a big admirer of Charles Dickens, wrote a classic essay about him. I think what really surprised me was that everything that Orwell did and everything that Orwell wrote ends up in 1984 in some way. There are little bits of, of everything. And so the proles, the world of the proles, which in some ways is the weakest part of the novel, but perhaps the most confusing part, because it's not quite clear what their role is and what they're meant to represent. You know, certainly again, came from his, his sort of first-hand experiences, his, his reporting. I mean, it's certainly not like, I would not call the novel Dickensian, but he, had a, he, he was obsessed with getting the texture of life, the texture of ordinary things, which is what sets it apart from any dystopian novel written up to that point, which were very abstract, very ideas-driven. And just as Winston cherishes, you know, the, the writing the feeling of writing on paper, the sensation of holding a paperweight. Orwell wanted to get a sense of how does this world 
feel? What does it sound like? How does it smell? And he drew all of that from his own experiences, whether from working at the BBC or reporting uh, in the north of England or just living in the part of London that he lived in. And so everything in it feels real, even though that world is, is sort of so unreal. Would it you, feels like you live in it. Would you define the word utopia and the word dystopian? Sure. So utopia just meant um, no place, you know, a place that does not exist, but it was also interpreted as meaning the good place. Um, and this, 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 was, this was coined centuries ago by Thomas More, became very, very popular literary genre in the late 19th century, inspired H.G. Wells, who then inspired Orwell. Um, so that you were basically, it was a way of people showing what their ideal society would look like. And then people responded to utopias with anti-utopias. And of course, one person's utopia is another person's dystopia. So people would read like a socialist's, conservatives would read a socialist's utopia and think, this sounds awful. I'm going to write my own perfect world. Uh, and the word dystopia, even though it had been around for a while, nobody really used it. Certainly, they didn't use it in Orwell's lifetime. He would have been very confused uh, to hear someone describe 1984 as a dystopia. He would have just called it a, 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 like an anti-utopia. And dystopia literally means the bad place. And that became more popular in the 1970s. And now, of course, it's a ubiquitous word. You know, nobody would really think to just go back to anti-utopia. So that's what he was writing, but it's not what he would have called it. We're uh, getting uh, near your dinner time in London, and uh, we've spent about an hour and five minutes with you. But, but I want to remind the audience that the name of this book is The Ministry of Truth, the biography of George Orwell's 1984. And our guest has been Dorian Linsky. And we thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.